did you ever notice as severe as the as the punishments in the Old Testament are, they are never, you know, keep this person alive for days. You know, mm-hmm. build a fire around them at three feet away mm-hmm. and make sure it stays hot. There's no waterboarding. There's no torture. Right. It's it's uh it's death. Right. It's, and, it's immediate death. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three Yay. failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, but again, uh, this week we're without Alex. This week it's just Kent and Nathan, seeking to discover, uh, well, we're seeking to recover, first of all, yeah. from bad ideas about God. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we're trying to recover this week from bad ideas about hell and recover uh, something good and wonderful about it. Is there something good and wonderful about hell? Maybe there is. Maybe there's something Ooh, yeah. right and just and true uh, about it and that's what we're exploring today last week and this week um with last week we discussed why the hell why hell right and go back and listen to that episode please uh as background today we're diving into what hell what what the hell why the hell last week what the hell this week uh, again last week saying if why why should there be a hell uh, why is there a hell why need there be a hell and then uh, we didn't get into what what is the makeup of hell? What does hell consist of? That's for this week. Um, what version of hell best accounts for the data? Is eternal conscious torment simply what the Bible teaches? Or are there other interpretations that offer a sufficient or better account for the biblical data? And what about the data of our moral sensibility? Uh, our sense of justice? Or our philosophical views of the eternal soul, or what, or what of the soul, is this data that uh, we need to account for? And so today we begin with what version of hell best accounts for the data? Yeah. Okay, data. Can we talk about the Bible that way? Data, data data driven theology. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're, I'm using the language of like scientific theories. Right. Yeah. So you know you have a new scientific theory, and it needs to if it's going to replace the old reigning paradigm, it needs to better account for the data. Yeah. So the old paradigm is has been working for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, because it accounts for the data that we have. Then time passes, and, and new data emerges. Suddenly, we have new data suggesting that the Earth may be a globe. Uh, we need a new theory. Yeah. Uh, we need a new theory that can both account for the old data, but also the new data mm-hmm. and can replace the old theory because it better accounts for the data. Right. Yeah. Well, and, or a wider theory are, you know, oftentimes our theories are just small and, and maybe it's because we're humans and we just, we want things to be manageable. Um, you know, I think about, I'm not sure I understand. Sorry, Siri. Um, yeah. Three. Three failed pastors. The role of of Alex today will be played by Siri. <laughs> um, so, we, and we get caught in either or dichotomies in in life. You know, when when the data started to suggest that there was such a thing as quantum physics, uh, Einstein initially rejected it because he just thought, man, that was that's just spooky. God doesn't play dice and st- you know stuff mm-hmm. like that, and so. Uh, eventually, he came around and, and came to understand that that was a thing. We still don't understand uh, quantum mechanics uh, entirely, but we just had to say, well, it exists. And and I think that um, there's a lot about, say, quantum theory and that it defies traditional 
physics. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we don't say, well, then physics don't exist, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or throw that out. We realize, well, our paradigm, we didn't have to, we didn't shift it so much as we widened it. And, mm. and I think that that is, it's pretty important for, as we contemplate God, I mean, if the universe is beyond our understanding and we can't contain it easily, uh, we have to just sometimes just say, man, this is, this is. These are contradictory, seemingly contradictory statements, and yet they appear to both be true based on what we can see, based on what's observable. And so we're going to have to hold them in tension mm-hmm. and allow our understanding of the universe to become widened, but also to be uh, to remain humble and say they appear to both be true, and I don't know how they're both true. Um, but we're going to accept that they're both true, is because because there's something marvelous mm-hmm. in it um, that that we can be in awe of something that is beyond the edges of our ability to understand. Hmm. And so I I think that's just a cautionary tale at the beginning because I was thinking about this this morning as as um, just considering and kind of pre thinking this conversation today and. And I think a lot of times when we when we think about something like God's wrath, it it begins to extend beyond the borders of our understanding of God's love, and and so we begin to think, well, if I if I'm if I embrace this notion that God um, will judge and that He will avenge Himself, that uh, that seems beyond, it doesn't seem compatible with my understanding of a God of love, and so. People are in a dilemma. They're like, you can't believe in a God of love and in a God of wrath, so we're going to have to get rid of one, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that suggests that it, it that God must fit within this dichotomy that he's, uh, it's, it's like when people say, well, God can't, can either be all-knowing or he can, or he can either be all-powerful or he can be all, um, all good. Mm-hmm. But if evil happens in the world, which one is it, right? Right. Um, well, <clears throat> we're presented with a God who's both. Our experience doesn't seem to line up with our understanding of both. But um, could it be, and Timothy Keller and others have, have suggested, maybe you don't know exactly in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things um, what's good for good. Mm-hmm. But the, there's this... It's kind of an arrogant humanist assumption that says, well, if he doesn't fit my notion of good, then he obviously can't be all-powerful or he's not good. And, uh, and so that leaves no room for this kind of humility that allows us to learn. And kind of like with Einstein, you know, if, if we had remained in that place where he said, well, quantum mechanics can't be true because stand, it, they defy those rules, defy the standard model, we would never have this whole big field of quantum theory now. So all I have to say, um, let's just think of some of these concepts as like quantum theory. Mm. Uh, Think about things that appear to be true, um, that are the strongest case is for God's judgment, I would say, in in the Bible. I um, can't find a strong case in the Bible, at least, for God not judging the world or for Somehow, him assuming, uh, subsuming everything into you know peace and light, and that there would be no purging of the evil. 
Uh, I can't find that concept in Scripture. There may be a, a proof text here and there, but... It, Maybe a hint. There's some universal, right. There's some statements about Christ, what Christ accomplished on the cross, that are universalistic. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe those are the ones that people are relying on yeah. and <laughs> saying, uh, you know, God, where Paul will say, he has reconciled all things to himself. Right. And so we can take that and expand upon that. This must be the way through this um, this thicket, right? Uh, this problems of hell, right? Judgment, mm-hmm. yeah. But and yet it doesn't actually seem to have worked that way in Paul's own thinking. No. In, in the writers of in the thinking of the writers of the New Testament, they just continue to talk about a coming judgment, right? Or seemingly Jesus, he like we said last time, he spoke more of uh, this winnowing, this sifting of humankind. Um, and that there would be some who are wheat and some who are chaff. And that may be troubling to us, but, um, you know, we don't, at, at the end of the day, we don't get to decide. Uh, God isn't subject to our sensibilities and our concept of, of what he ought to do. If he is, then he's not God. And so here we are. We're back to that dilemma. So, all right, let's jump into it. What is hell? <clears throat> so the word hell, uh, a lot of us... I don't know, Kent. What do you think? What do you think mm. the the average Joe? We could get deep mm. into these words, but I've already had a lot of words. So uh, can, hell, hell. What yeah. do I? Th- what, the when aver- people the envision hell, yeah. What do oh, you I think it's get? like eternal suffering. <clears throat> it's fire, right? It's torment. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like the far side, right? The only thing cold in hell is the coffee. <laughs> Did you ever see that one? No, no. I don't remember it. No. So these raggedy guys are there. They're at this uh, coffee. And they, and they drink it like the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. They thought of everything, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and in and in that uh, concept, who is they? Right? Uh, is it is it God? The or, administrators, <laughs> right? But the administrators are are the devil, right? The devil and his minions. Uh, and yet, that's not the picture we get. Yeah. In so, in popular Bible. notions, yeah, the devil is torturing people in hell, but that's not actually the biblical image. Mm-mm. No, I don't know where, other than just from more pagan ideas, maybe from uh, Milton, uh, but that that you know, in the pagan concept, Hades is the god over the underworld, and he's in charge of it. It's his realm. Uh, what happens there is under his command. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scripture depicts hell as the uh, as a prison or a, a final judgment for Satan and his minions, not <clears throat> a place where he rules. So that's concept one that just needs to kind of go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it highlights this popular notion of hell that is not really founded in Scripture. And we need to be able to, to discern the difference between, hey, this is, this is something that I just always thought was true and um, what's actually in the Bible about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word hell does describe several different ideas or places in um, metaphysics, I guess, right? So there, you have Hades, which there's the Greek word Hades refers to this underworld um, jail. The, the abode of the dead? Is that different? Right. Yeah, and it seems to be divided into a more pleasant place and a less pleasant place, um, at least in Jesus' concept in Luke 16 with the uh, story of Lazarus and the rich, rich man. Some people think that's a parable, but it's the only parable where someone is actually named. You know, it's kind of like if I told you the you know, a fable about George Washington or something, you know, like him cutting down the cherry tree, but, you know, 
that's inherently a, a lie. <laughs> you know, you don't actually get to really, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to use actual people to tell uh, fables. Um, but at any rate, you know, uh, I don't think Jesus did that. I, I think that he's describing an, an afterlife reality. Peter seems to suggest that that's the case when he says that God is able to hold under judgment, you know, for judgment, those um, who've wronged us, who've, who've been our persecutors um, until that day. So Hades seems to be a maybe that classic concept of hell in the sense that it's an unpleasant place, uh, not certainly a place ruled over by Satan and his um, minions, but um, I would say it's a, it's a jail not a prison. It's a place for the disembodied uh, spirits of people to be held until such time as, as judgment takes place. H-E-L-D. Held. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, so hell as part one, point one, hell is the abode of the dead. It's a jail. It's a place where prisons are held. Spirits are held uh, awaiting final judgment. Now, is this is this uh, a place where un the unrighteous are held? Or is this a place where all the dead are held? Uh, I, would, I would say, here's my understanding of it, um, that it's the place where all the dead were held. Okay. Uh, that, and we don't, we don't get a lot of, of um, teaching on First Enoch, and, and there's probably a good reason for that. It's kind of a weird book. But the, it seems obvious that Jesus and his apostles treated it as canon, right? That, it was that, an important uh, book in their day. It was, yeah. And, and so it's it's quoted, it's referred to both by Jesus and the apostles. Um, and this book had this concept. It's a, it's kind of a stretching tour of um, all the realms, right? And and so Enoch is taken on all these, to all these places. And for Enoch, there there is this underworld jail, uh, like these three caverns dug out, you know, where nobody can escape and one of them is more pleasant one of them's neutral and one of them's bad uh, we talked last time about how the neutral no we didn't we talked about that sunday night mm -hmm. <laughs> the neutral one uh seems to be the place where those who were who came under the judgment in noah's day were held because they um they were sinners they were judged by god but they weren't um righteous so god's he punished them but he's not going to bring them into a paradisic realm. Um, and then you had the paradisic realm, this nicer place, I guess, right? And um, and then you had one that was less pleasant to be in. And so uh, that is this concept of the afterlife in Enoch. We don't get much concept of the afterlife in um, the Old Testament. It's almost as if they didn't really have a concept of it. You know, mm -hmm. they talk about he rested with his fathers. That seems to suggest he's asleep. Mm -hmm. And they um, say things like the dead, like in the Psalms, David says, the dead do not praise you. Right. Yeah. And so there's this distance from God at death. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the one that believes in me will never die. Um, Paul says, um, he says, it's better to depart and be with the Lord. All of a sudden, there's something that's shifted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think prior to Christ's uh, death and resurrection, that there were... The people who died were all really in this kind of uh, shadow land. But at Christ's resurrection, uh, the righteous, and I don't know who all that includes, don't ask me, um, but 
either, you know, there's this mention, this kind of strange mention in Matthew that the righteous rose again and were seen by many, right? Mm -hmm. It could be that that was the springing of people, the ancient saints um, from this Hadean realm on their way. I mean, they obviously didn't just hang out and, you know, buy a house in the suburbs and get a job. You know, those people were obviously in a, in a transitional moment. Um, and I believe that they were, they had raised, but they were on their way out. <laughs> you know, they, they'd pop through sup, you know, and then mm. they were gone, um, uh, presumably ascended to the direct presence of God where Jesus also uh, ascended. Okay. And is this, are, are you, are you describing Hades? We were right. talking about words earlier. Right. Yeah. So the abode of the dead, this place mm-hmm. of the dead, this right. prison. Right. Right. And was so it's a still there. Christian concept, uh-huh. and the dead were there, and then a new concept emerges. Right. Right. In, well, and Peter seems Christian to suggest era. that Hades is still there for the wicked dead, that mm-hmm. they still go to the soul prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but, or the soul jail. Prison, jail and prison are different, right? <laughs> Jail's where you go after you're sentenced. I mean, prison's where you go after you're sentenced. Jail is where you're held until trial. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hades equates to jail, not prison. Um, and so there are people who, according to Peter, that are still in jail. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when someone who is a Christ follower dies, that they go immediately into the presence of God. So there's this, when Jesus says, the one that lives and believes in me will never die, that, that when Jesus is our life, that we just continue to live, even if our body stops breathing. And mm-hmm. so Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Mm-hmm. That's a different outlook on death than Elijah had, right? Because when Elijah's threatened with death, what does he do, right? Hightails it, basically almost loses his faith. Uh, different than David. Nobody had this, in the, in the Old Testament, nobody has this grand hope that this is going to be a, a graduation day. Uh, they're all like, man, bummer. You know, the best you can hope for is a, a happy life here, progeny, family around you when you die in the Old Testament. Um, and yet there are allusions to something more. Mm-hmm. Job speaks of a resurrection. Daniel speaks of a resurrection. There's uh, implications as to some sort of a resurrection in in the Psalms. So there's an eternal life that's that's there's a concept of eternal life in the Old Testament, but it's not at the point of death that there's not this expectation that something's going to be better or you're going to be in the immediate presence of God um, until Jesus. So uh, that's probably more than anybody really needed. And I guess it may be somewhat off topic, except that in the older translations, that word Hades is translated hell. And so that may be where we get the concept. You know, so when... That's where the word becomes ascendant, maybe. Is it mm-hmm. is because, as a result of the older translations? So in Luke 16, 22 and 23, Jesus describes something that it sounds like the classical concept of hell. He says the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, notice this isn't into the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, in the NIV, he was in torment and looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So this guy, Lazarus, is in a Hadean realm, okay? In the older translations, it would say in hell, if you read the King mm-hmm. James. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get this idea that people are in this in these caves and, you know, there's this fire and 
everything's bad, right? Uh, because of this depiction of Lazarus in hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jesus says he's in Hades. Um, and so Peter talks about this idea in Second Peter 2. Um, he talks about that God rescued righteous Lot. Um, and then he says, uh, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Mm-hmm. So there's this this holding area mm-hmm. is w- one idea that, that maybe we've thought of as hell, where people are conscious, uh, maybe they're suffering um, and they're being held, but that is not equivalent to the word um, that really ought to be, it probably shouldn't even be translated hell. I mean, the word hell really comes out of what um, Middle English pagan notions of the after of the underworld, but it comes from Jesus' uh, use of this word Gehenna, which means a Hinnom Valley, right? Uh, the the actual concept of this final place, and so uh, Jesus spoke about it, and he says, "If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell." or Gehenna, okay, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So those are, those are, those words um, are very dis- uh, have have shaped our concept of hell, right? As eternal fire, right? Yeah, eternal yeah. suffering. Yeah, and we need to we need to get into the distinctions there. Mm-hmm. Is 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 it eternal suffering or is it eternal fire? And yeah. can there be a difference between the two? Right. Yeah. So this um, this concept of of this place, it it comes from. Um, the prophets and the prophets speak of the Valley of Hinnom, which is what Gehenna means as a place of defilement, uh, a place where the Israel worshiped the, the Baals and they sacrificed their children to Molech and that it would become a place of slaughter. So Jeremiah 19, he says, so beware the days are coming declares the Lord when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the valley of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. In this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies. So this is talking about a temporal judgment, but it's happening in this place of defilement. And then Isaiah um, brings this place up again, um, or he doesn't mention uh, the valley of Hinnom specifically, uh, but he talks about uh, this place where where this judgment will happen. And he says, as the new heavens, the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. Okay, so there, there's an enduring here. Uh, and he says, from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies, Isaiah sixty six twenty four of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So 
this isn't some sort of a conscious torment, but it is, this is apocalyptic language about this judgment that is severe, it is final, and uh, Jesus is appropriating this to speak of, of judgment day and what will happen to those who are under God's judgment. Now, as to whether this is these are conscious souls of people or whether it's their bodies, uh, Isaiah suggests that it's their bodies, right? That worms don't really eat souls. Um, and in Isaiah, it was prophetic. It was prophetic, mm-hmm. apocalyptic language describing yeah. a temporal judgment and uh, in history of of Israel. Right. Yeah. Jesus um, in in Matthew or Matthew um, in his telling or his version of that Mark. Um, what was it? Mark nine passage. Um, so Matthew's version of it, Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, what part of you is going into hell? There it's the body, right? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Mm -hmm. So Matthew, who arguably has uh, probably the most, uh, most difficult passage uh, the one that seems to suggest eternal suffering in Matthew 25, he says they will go off into eternal punishment. Um, but the righteous to eternal life. Right, right. Um, and so, but Matthew, who he seems to have understood Jesus to be saying that this is an incinerator um, for bodies and not for souls. Um, and if it is an incinerator for souls, it's a um, it's actually an incinerator. It's not a... Um, some sort of little furnace that keeps people burning. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that be? Like a uh, a warming drawer, right? <laughs> something that just keeps yeah. it, right? Yeah. Just keeps, keeps it keeps hot. Keeps it hot. Yeah, keeps it at least one thirty-five. Uh, you have to have at least one thirty-five to be, have all the germs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. So you think about think about. Okay, so in the Old Testament, there is a prescription for punishment, right? The, that the Old Testament law didn't have much room for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any room much in the mm-hmm. Old Testament for mm-hmm. rehabilitation. That's more of a modern concept. I'm not saying that rehabilitation is wrong. We would say it's redemption. You know, under Christ, we do have this somewhat of a concept of, of redemption that mm-hmm. uh, people are allowed. Uh, but if you're building a society and the society is paramount, sometimes punishment is um, is required. Okay. And so the Old Testament seems to have had that, this idea of kind of limiting the spread of sin. And so punishment is prescribed. But did you ever notice as severe as the, as the punishments in the Old Testament are, they are never, you know, keep this person alive for days. You know, mm-hmm. build a fire around them at three feet away mm-hmm. and make sure it stays hot. There's no waterboarding. There's no torture. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's death. Right. And it's, it's immediate death. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and so it calls for stoning and you say, well, that's pretty brutal and stuff. But most of the time stoning was to throw someone off of a cliff. Um, you just let the, the stones, you know, come mm-hmm. and meet them. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty quick death that, yeah, again, it, it's nobody wants to think about that. It's a horrific idea in a civilized world like we have. And yet um, where capital punishment is prescribed, I, I think it's probably better than, say, um, lethal injection in our society. Um, so yeah, instant, instant death, instant destruction, not prolonged 
torture, you know, not mm-hmm. keep them in a hot box for a week, let them out, ask them if they've repented. Mm-hmm. It's just not present. And we talked about last time that this um, forced suffering, it doesn't bring redemption. It just hardens someone's bitterness. Um, and so it, it wouldn't have worked anyway. So anyway, uh, Jesus says this, and, and I think this is really important for our uh, discussion on hell. What is it? In Matthew ten twenty eight, he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I want to talk about that because I think one of the one of the um, one of the premises of our modern notions of heaven and hell uh, and of the afterlife. One one premise is that souls are eternal, mm-hmm. and um, we should talk about where that comes from because I have that idea. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's sort of like an unquestioned assumption. Mm-hmm. Hell has to be eternal because souls are eternal. God yeah. made them that way. Yeah. But here Jesus is saying, fear God who can kill the soul. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, the soul seems to be a temporal thing. Um, it seems that God created humankind as uh, we are contingent beings. So when you know God created Adam and Eve in the garden, what's the punishment? Right. Um, it's, it's not to zap them and he said, you're going to die. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but so how does he, how does he ultimately bring about their death? You remember? Well, uh, we've talked about this in other settings. Yeah. What is the death that they experienced? Sure. Well, yeah. they had spiritual death, but their physical it's, death was, um, the consequence of yeah. their spiritual Yeah. They did death. eventually die physically. Right. So how did he bring that about? Oh, um, old age. Right, right, right. But why did they suffer old age? I mean, was that, did he say, now you're going to get older, mm. right? Well, yeah, we, I think we impose some ideas on the story and say, well, they weren't going to age, mm-hmm. but now that they've sinned, they, they do age and die. Right. Uh, and I, I mean, that's, I think the assumptions we have, it could be that, in fact, they were always going to age and die. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, what, what are you getting at? Well, let's say you are a fish. And you're living happily on a coral reef. And, and here comes this new um, critter down there you've never seen before. It's got like, its fins are long and skinny, right? And it's, and it's black and these bubbles come up off of it every time it breathes. And you think, man, that is a weird fish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, are you correct in assuming that's a fish? Uh uh, probably not probably correct. Not. No, right. But it's down there. And yeah. It's in the water and yeah. it's staying there a long time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been down there for half an hour. And you're like, wow, this is, must be a fish. Right? Um, but what you don't realize is that this is a contingent being in your environment. This being is contingent on something that is not inherent to itself. Um, it, it's dependent on something else to allow it to be down there. Mm-hmm. So it's not fish. Mm-hmm. It's it's an air breather, and it just happens to have a tank on its back, mm-hmm. right? Um, so when they're kicked out of the garden, what does he say? What, he says the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Let us let us you know we're going to have to cast him out of the garden, lest he reach out his hand, take the fruit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so however we understand that fruit is that there is this um, 
there's something from without the man that make that allows him the possibility of living forever. It's mm-hmm. not something that is is intrinsic within him. Mm-hmm. He's not born that way. He he can access it, but he is not inherently that way. So God's telling them, "You're going to die because I'm not going to let you. I'm 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 going to I'm I'm going to forbid access to the tree of life. Right. You're going to die because you're going to lose access." Mm-hmm. Not because previously you were in an immortal being, right? Inherently immortal, right? And now you've been transitioned into a mortal being, right? Um, that, but that may be the way we tend to read the story, right? They were mortal. Your point is, I think, mm-hmm. they were mortal from the beginning, exactly. But they had access to the, to the tree of life. Yeah. Uh, after the fall, they lost their access. Mm-hmm. And so at the picture of redemption, when the city comes down and, and what's there? Tree of the life. tree of life. Right. So eternal life is, is, is contingent. And um, I, I don't know that this tree is, in, in, is metaphorical entirely, but here's what I would say. Uh, from what I understand of redemption and say First John. So First John speaks of um, this fellowship with God, right? And... If God is eternal and we have been invited into a fellowship with him, into living an eternal lifestyle, then uh, eternal existence comes part and parcel. Um, Apart from fellowship with God, there is only death, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this, the tree of life, it could be, in, at least in Revelation, to pick something. I doubt there's some sort of a substance that, you know, like royal jelly for bees, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, but there could be. Uh, there certainly could be. But it seems that there, there is this depiction of, of imbibing him and of being uh, assumed into his community. And so that because he is eternal, we become eternal as we join with him. Um, and so those who would be separate from God don't have an inherent eternality about their existence. Uh, scripture talks about how, you know, a death that the spirit returns to God who gave it. You know, that, that I, even our spirits, I think, are on loan uh, unless they are intertwined with his. And so uh, Paul says that the one who um, is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her but the one who is joined to the lord becomes one spirit with him and so our spirits gain this kind of um, eternal existence by being intertwined with his spirit not because they are just somehow inherently eternal uh, or at least they don't carry with them our consciousness our experience our spirits could be just an impersonal extension of him um and when reabsorbed, then we are lost. Who, who and what we are can be lost. So uh, because I think the soul is ultimately who and what we are, our mind, will, and emotions. What's recognizable about you if I, if I know you as a person is your soul. Mm-hmm. Now, if that were to endure forever, uh, banished from God, that I think that would be uh, pretty cruel. Not that God isn't free to be cruel if he wants to be it. Uh, again, I want to get back to this idea that I, it is not uh, my 
right to judge God's behavior. <laughs> I never want to get to the point where I say, well, that can't be true because that would be unrighteous and um, that, that we have to hold in tension this idea that if God does it, it's good. Um, and I know that that probably smacks against a lot of our ideas of ethics and concepts of what that means. But if it's not true, then he's not God. Right? We just have to get that whatever, if he is subject to something, then that's ultimate. And, and I want us to, to grasp that. that and, and so if we have a concept, say an instinct toward fairness, it's probably because that's who he already is and not he has to conform to my concept. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and our instinct could be wrong. I mean, we could have a good instinct and a bad instinct. Sure. Yeah. And culture is not to be, ultimately not to be trusted. You know, there are things that just rise up and, and they are intrinsically true to us because we've been enculturated with them, but they're not. You know, go back to that old um, story, uh, who was it, Herodotus, that, that recorded um, about how Cyrus brought in you know, the, the Greeks and, and I don't remember who else, these other peoples. And they said, you know, what, what could I pay you to, um, to burn the bodies of your dead relatives? And, and the one side was like, you know, no way they were horrified, you know? And then he asked the other ones, well, what could I pay you to, to eat the bodies of your dead relatives? And they horrified, you know, that he's, he's presenting each with the other's culture and they, you know, they just couldn't, Mm-hmm. couldn't absorb it. You know, Cyrus became a very, a very wise leader in realizing that custom is king mm-hmm. and, and not trying to absorb people in terms of their custom, force them to act against their own native instinct in terms of what's right and wrong. But the gospel accommodates culture as well in, 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 in beautiful ways. Um, but it, at the same time, we have to be able to back away and say, okay, well, just because this is woven into my personality because of my culture doesn't necessarily mean it's true or the only way it can be done. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be able to be critical of that and get outside it. Okay, so let's take a step back and review. We're talking about the, the um, well, we're talking about conditional immortality. We said at the beginning right. of, our, of this little two-part series that we were going to get into the topic of annihilationism. Right. And you said another word for that is conditional immortality. Right. You are describing an immortality, uh, I'm sorry, conditional mortality. You are describing, am I saying it right? Conditional immortality. So we're only immortal based on uh, yeah. God's decision. That's right. Maybe, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you're describing that, uh, a view in which the soul is, um, not inherently immortal. Right. Yeah. And, and as a back, as, as a, as a, as a premise, uh, which will help us get to the conclusion yeah. of annihilationism. Right. So the assumption that the soul is immortal comes from Plato, his, uh, dualistic view of reality that there is a, a realm of forms that is eternal. So there is eternal table, you know, there is eternal chair, there is eternal horse, there is eternal cow, and there is eternal soul uh, in this higher realm of, of ideals, okay, in Platonic thought. So as medieval theologians are doing work and they're reading things like Matthew that says, hey, you're going to, you know, that there's this eternal punishment they're just they're projecting on that this idea that the soul's got to go somewhere right <laughs> you know that there's this there's this factory churning out souls and uh these things are just they're just never break down i mean can you right. imagine 
what you would do if you had all of this, uh, all these iPhones that just never broke down. Wait, we do have that. <laughs> all, this, all this garbage that just, you know, it's never going to, it's never going to degrade back into the, uh, where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but God's, I think God's a lot better manufacturer than we are. And, um, and so these souls are not eternal, that they are, um, destructible. And so Jesus says, Hey, don't be afraid of the one that can destroy the body, but be afraid of the one that can destroy the body and souls in hell. So hell seems to, in Jesus concept, be a place of destruction in an incineration of this non-material part of a unique human (coughs) being as a part of his judgment. So those are Jesus' words, and so if you want to follow the, the Sermon on the Mount and stuff like that, that's great. Do that, but also understand that he says there's a place where your body and soul will be destroyed. Um, and, man, that's John three sixteen. Here's what's odd to me is that we can believe in, in eternal suffering in hell, and then John three sixteen becomes kind of this mantra of the Christian movement, right? Um, you know, so I'm going to read it in the NIV, For God so loved the world that... Uh, that He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not suffer forever. That's not what it says. Uh, Right. Shall not perish. Right. There's there's this this destruction, uh, but have eternal life. So the opposite of eternal life is perishing. Um, These aren't very good opposites, this idea of eternal life and eternal suffering. I mean, it's still life. You're still alive. You're still conscious. Right. Um, And so... I think that we have to realize that that the overarching movement of, of Scripture, uh, Plato notwithstanding, um, seems to suggest that hell is a place of incineration, of um, an elimination of all that is in rebellion to God mm-hmm. in creation. And we talked last week about how <clears throat> there's a punishment aspect of that, and there's also a, uh, a cleansing aspect of that. Right. So there's a relational aspect, uh, which is the punishment, but there's also the aspect, the relation between the creature and God. And, um, then, and, and then there's also the sense in which the incineration is in order to cleanse creation of all that is in rebellion against God so that there can be a f- new creation right. that is holy of God. Right. And it gets back to that Isaiah 66, you remember, where he says, as the new heavens and new earth will endure before me. And then he says, and they will go and see the bodies of those who are burned. So that there's this conflagration, that there is a burning way. Uh, Peter talks about that even the elements will burn with fervent heat. That there is a, a cleansing of the earth by fire. That the word purification comes from the Greek pur, which means fire. So there's a, a, a purifying right of, of creation, of this realm. Uh, because it seems from Scripture that sin doesn't just pollute human souls, but even our environment. There's something twisted and broken here. That there's a spiritual sickness here that needs to just be completely wiped for God to start over in in this place. So there's going to be a renewal of the earth, but it must part and parcel of that renewal is is a cleansing. And this cleansing is going to be extreme. I think I brought up last time, you know, if you're going to cleanse your stuff at your house for Passover, that there are two levels of cleansing. One is in water. So if you have a very smooth ceramic dish or something, you can wash it and you can be sure that there's no residual contaminants on it. 
but if you had if you have something that has um has pores in it or something like a say a knife that is made out of some kind of a rustier metal or something with divots or pockets that the only way to get those sorts of things clean is in intense heat um and so that's that's something that's just woven into as as a Jewish household would be eliminating yeast from their home in, in preparation for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that there's a cleansing of the home entirely of all of this invisible contamination. And and they understood that if you're going to really clean something, some, sometimes it has to get real hot. Mm-hmm. You have to burn it off. And we understand that too. You know, we, we have um, hospitals and stuff have autoclaves where you, you put it in and you close the lid and, you know, the steam comes and it just kills everything on it. If we can get that, then hell doesn't sound like such a strange concept anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have to realize that uh, uh, no, we, are the, we are the virus. Um, and uh, I know we'd like to congratulate ourselves and think, well, we're just way too uh, beautiful and wonderful and noble. But we're really not. Most of us. A lot of us, and, and me on my worst days, and maybe you too, you know, we're just probably not that great. We're probably not the, the most positive influence on this uh, creation. Only because of his activity in our life can we have any hope of contributing here. And so that's uh, that's the rationale, I think, for this final cleansing of all things. And it's kind of... You know, people can say, well, without without the notion of hell, why would we go and preach the gospel? And it's just like, well, <laughs> you know, why, why oh, save a oh, life? Wait, wait, wait. Without the notion of hell as eternal as suffering. Eternal suffering, I'm sorry. Yeah. Why, what's, uh, then what good is the gospel? Right. Right. But do we need that? Do we, uh, do we not want someone to enjoy the fellowship with God? Uh, I mean, John says we in this we, life and in the next, right? And he says that we we proclaim this to you, and in doing so, it makes our joy complete. So we are fueled by our own joy to tell the good news. I mean, it really is how you close that loop. As anytime you hear something wonderful, it that loop is hanging open, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and John seems to be saying we want to close that loop. We want to be able to share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's certainly the and which is what God is doing in the gospel. He's right. got this joy and he's sharing it with us. And he wants to include us in it. And then right. evangelism is we have this joy in God and we want to share it with others and bring others into it. Right. And we want them to have it now and we want them to have it forever. Right. We don't want them to go out of existence. Right. This would be the, this would be the logic of preaching the gospel in uh, a universe where annihilationism mm-hmm. is the view of hell. Right. Yeah. So it's all it it. I wouldn't say it's all positive, but it's mostly positive because, um, you know, if, if you're an atheist, what is it you expect to happen after you die? Uh, uh, the end. Right. Nothing. <laughs> right. Nothing yeah. happens after yeah. you die. So really, uh, you know, those who disbelieve the gospel are, are just getting what they expect. Uh, if, if I'm right here, if mm-hmm. this is all true, this, it's not something that God is just going to be springing some sort of surprise on you, um, that it's something that you you've already dealt with, you know, the person has already dealt with and they've already accepted. Um, and so there, there's a real, I think there's a real fairness to it and that God is the author of life. He gives it in the first place. Um, and you know, as Bill Cosby used to say, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now we wouldn't say that that was the right of a parent, uh, but it, again, parents aren't God. 
uh, and that life isn't really up to us. We, I mean, we can participate in bringing life into the world, but it's not ultimately from us, mm-hmm. right? We are just passing it on. And so that's why we don't have the right to take them out, back out. But um, if it is, if the one who gives life is, at least in my understanding of what's fair, is free to then take it back, especially if someone has violated the terms and conditions of, of this um, loan. You mm-hmm. know? So if you, know, if, if you get a car and um, it's on, and you have payments and you don't make those payments and mm-hmm. some guy's out in your driveway at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. He has rights and, to that car. And you car. call the cops and they say, someone's stealing my car. Now, who are the cops going to side with? The... The dude, the repo man, the repo right? man. That's right? what I, was, I was looking for that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't fear the repo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, he's, he's got, he has the right to come and take it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, it, and so we have to understand that God, God's not the repo man, uh, but there, but he does have the right, um, to, to not re up. We can say, well, life comes and goes and we all get that, mm-hmm. that we're not inherently immortal. Um, and so that's the deal. Now, if he's going to re-up it, if he's going to re-up your subscription, you know, uh, well, it, that's that's something you have to participate in. That's something we have to decide we want to be a part of. Now, I, um, I, I, probably your modern atheist believes that both body and well, the modern atheist doesn't believe in the soul. They don't. They don't, they don't believe in an immortal soul, right? Sure. Uh, they think we're 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 merely physical creatures, and our minds are uh, are products of of the of the brain um but in but actually most people are not atheists um and they believe in an immortal soul and they believe that they will go to heaven when they die right because they think they're good people Mm -hmm. and they think that most people are good people and most people go to heaven when they die yeah certainly my loved ones and my my family and friends do right yeah yeah i hope they're right (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't sound like it. What it, What it sounds like to me is that from what I think I understand about the Bible, and uh, you know, we've we've said that the Bible is a is a commentary on the gospel. Okay, so we all have a job to kind of contemplate and to parse the gospel into our lives. That the Bible isn't the sum total of all revelation, but the gospel is preaching to us more and more. But the Bible is a record of God's chosen people wrestling with the gospel and commenting on the gospel. And so I default to deferring to them on the gospel when they talk about things. Okay. I don't think it's my right to directly contradict their understanding of the gospel. They may have had a limited understanding of the gospel, but I don't see where they had a erroneous understanding of the gospel. Okay. Okay. So just going on record with that. So as I, as I cite scripture, I'm just saying here are people who've done the work, who had the insight, they had the background to comment on the gospel. I'm going to defer to them, but I'm also going to, as I'm making decisions in life, I'm going to consult the gospel directly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I just want to put that caveat in there. Um, where was I going with that? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> oh, well, I, I said the point yeah. about, about, um, modern people thinking that good people, right. my family and friends right. go to heaven when they die. They're go. in a better place. Right. So as I, as I understand the scripture, it seems that th- let's just have, let's talk about what happens when you die. Okay. So what happens when you die? Um, it seems that those who are 
disciples of Jesus who are who are living their life for his sake, um, when they die, are brought in immediately into the presence of God. Okay? So um, when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, I think that those two are bound together in tandem, that the degree to which one is true, the other is also true. Mm-hmm. For everyone else, you're still going to that same place, that Hadean realm. Okay, and some of it, there may be different experience in that Hadean realm. It seems that there uh, somehow are people, disembodied spirits, who are serving the enemy and have at least an awareness of this place that that, that soul, uh, that soul and spirit prison is somewhat permeable between this layer that we live in. And uh, that's a whole other conversation. But it's a, it's in disembodied conscious state that is somewhat um, removed from God's immediate presence. So we could say it's a step down from this realm. So here we access God through prayer, right? Repentance and stuff like that. In that realm, there isn't that. It's, there, there's a real dryness if we think about God's presence and the experience of his grace as being living water, that we're told that there is a place that's a waterless realm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't want to be there. But it's not eternal. Okay? So if it's those who die outside of Christ, they are held there. Now, we're told that there's a coming judgment, and we talked before about how judgment, there's going to be some sort of a system of, of the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's a meritorious system that's going to be a part of judgment. Daniel doesn't say, when he says that those who sleep in the dust will rise, some to, everla- to shame and others to everlasting life, um, he doesn't say that, it, you know, that they will be judged based on whether they believed in Jesus, but that they, he says, those who are wise, those who lead people to righteousness. So they're good people who are in the Hadean realm, who I believe will live forever. Um, I, I think that those who are followers of Christ will be the co-regents over a society based of righteous people. Okay. So, but at any rate, those who are not followers of Christ will be in a disembodied Hadean realm awaiting a day of judgment when all of that will finally be settled, the accounts will be settled, and the wicked will be incinerated. There's just not a place for them in a renewed, you know, we, we are in this, this parentheses, this temporary kind of existence. But in the eternal, the culmination of all things, there's no place for that, right? If people have chosen away from God, they've chosen wickedness, they've preyed on their fellow man, that those people don't belong in a society of utter freedom. You know, in, in this new society where everything is going to be free, then somebody who has already established that if given freedom, they would do harm, is it just doesn't have a place. To me, that sounds fair. Uh, if other people don't, you know, you don't have to think it's fair. You don't have to like it, but it seems to be the overarching revelation of the Bible. Um, and it seems to be the implication of the gospel. If Jesus is coming to judge the world, right, the, so we are in the kingdom of God that is yet, but not yet. That's implicit to the gospel. If we didn't even have the Bible, then what does it say that Jesus is coming back? Well, it says that eternity is going to take place here, or at least the next epoch of human history will take place here. Or he wouldn't be coming back. He would just, you know, we'd all be sucked away to wherever he is, right? Um, so he's coming back, and there's something going down here. If he's not here, he, he's coming back. Something's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're in the kingdom of God. We know things are not as they should be. 
we know that he's done something. Um, we know that that he's brought life and joy into our lives. Um, so there seems to be in inherent in the gospel is this kind of pause, this parentheses that we're in. That's implied. If I just told you Jesus died, he rose again, he's coming back. That that between rose again and coming back is implied this parentheses and coming back also says he's coming back to do something, to change this parent, parenthetical existence. Uh, and so inherent in that is this judgment. And this judgment, if it's going to be the culmination, the fulfillment of all things, it's going to suggest that what was broken here is going to be done away. And unfortunately, some of what was broken here, what, what is broken here, maybe most of what's broken here is, is engineered by human beings who have chosen to prey on other people and to um, somehow benefit at others' expense and, and have perpetuated a, a society that is unjust and in many places around the world unlivable. Now, will God retain those people and give them freedom? Or will he keep them incarcerated forever? Neither of those seem to be tenable. There must be a third option that both is well within God's rights and his justice, but also mercy. And I would say that's the doctrine of hell as the incinerating fire. I'm going to, uh, so I've addressed this idea, the worm won't die, right? And the fire is not quenched. And I, and I mm -hmm. said that's apocalyptic language. It's from Isaiah 66. It's taken from this vision of an incineration of burning of bodies. Mm -hmm. um, someone will bring up Revelation 14 that talks about they will go out and um, that the smoke of their punishment will rise forever and ever. All right. So Revelation 14, 9 through 13 says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people. So that speaks a lot to the idea of eternal suffering. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't say it's eternal. It says the smoke of their torment. Obviously, there will be. Uh, this isn't going to be a pleasant death mm -hmm. for, for many, right? And uh, that there is going to be some sort of a, an, a lingering to it, at least in the case of some. Jesus says the one that knew his master's will and didn't do it will be, will be beaten with many stripes. So it's not all the same for everybody. But this idea of the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever um, is it's indicative that there will be some sort of eternal suffering. And yet um, this is yet another allusion to the Old Testament where in Isaiah 34, Isaiah speaks of how Edom will be judged. And, and he says, for the, the Lord has a day of vengeance. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? A day, a year of retribution, okay, uh, to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become a blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever and ever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again.
Okay. So um, if you go to the Holy Land today, um, how are you going to find Edom? Mm, look for the smoke, right? <laughs> right. Right. Again, it's, it's apocalyptic language. It's 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 speaking almost hyperbolic of, of God's wrath as being extreme and hot and unyielding, um, but it is not. It's not a straightforward doctrine that people are going to suffer consciously forever, um, and and you can see that because um, John, um, the author of Revelation, is appropriating this image of something that we know is apocalyptic language, just mm-hmm. because you can't go visit this this place. You know, Edom has become Mordor, right, mm-hmm. and it hasn't. So there's that. Um, so now we dealt with the counter arguments. I think we had a lot more uh, ground to cover on this, but I don't know how much of it. I think we've actually touched on most of what we were going to say. So, Thanks, everyone. That was a deep dive. And if you stayed with us to this point, please, by all means, email us your questions. What do you think we didn't cover? What lingers in your mind uh, about annihilation, about hell? Discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. 